You're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, it is season eight of America's Talk Radio Show about opera. It's Opera Box Score. I'm George Cedarquist, joined this week by Oliver Camacho and Weston Williams. All right, Chicago is a countertenor town. First, Aria Nussbaum Cohen returns five years after he won the Met National. Ki- Sorry, excuse me, the Eric and Dominique Lafont competition. <laughs> the star countertenor adds another jewel to his crown. He's our first three-time inside the huddle champ. Ooh. Then, Baylor Bear countertenor Michael Skarkey takes a few free throws on Monteverdi and the coronation of Papea. Skarky is in Chicago to make a case for the sad sack role of Atone with Haymarket Opera later this month. Plus, two-minute drill. Just when you thought a certain yoga sex cult client was out of the news cycle, <laughs> Placido Domingo makes a fool of himself in Verona. <laughs> Don't make a fool of yourself. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast, Stitcher and Spotify. You're going to click follow Apple Podcasts, hit the plus sign, and send us a voice memo. Email us your hot takes at operaboxscore at gmail.com. You get an OBS beer coaster and an OBS lapel pin just for sharing your voice and getting it heard. Season eight. It's the special season eight uh coaster and the special season eight lapel pin <laughs> redesigned it's it's so it's so exciting oliver camacho there he is back for more wow what an incredible u.s open uh it one was. of the most exciting two weeks of tennis i've seen yeah. in my short short life i'm only 16 years old there you go. Uh, but the energy <laughs> Did you of say the 60 <laughs> The energy of the <laughs> dick uh, of the first week with uh, Serena Williams pending retirement, uh, it was so exciting every time she came on the on the court, and the audience continued to come. Like even when she was eliminated in the third round, they still brought their passion, and I think a lot of new fans were there, especially to cheer on uh, the black. Um, men's player Francis Tiapo, mm-hmm. who made it to the semifinals. Mm-hmm. Um, was eventually beaten by um, Carlos Alcaraz, who went on to win the tournament. 19 yeah. years oh old. Super exciting. I mean, he if anybody deserves to win, it was him. He played his heart out. Two five-set matches leading up to the final. One of them ending at 2.40 a.m., the latest that a match has ever ended uh, at Flushing Meadows at the Arthur Ashe stadium uh the billy jean king center whatever you call that thing <laughs> what a tournament <laughs> if there was ever a sign that times are changing in tennis it was definitely that u.s yeah. Open with so many new names weston williams there he is alabama had a super close call against texas over the weekend yeah it was a rough one ashley tells us that uh nebraska football has just named the replacement for scott frost uh coach mickey joseph the first black head coach of any sport of any time (laughs) at the university of nebraska which is huge fantasy football also back now that the nfl is back in action Mm. tobias wright who's dead to us of course and i putting together uh our team as we join the opera philadelphia fantasy football league which is you'll get (laughs) updates now throughout the entire NFL season. I will just say that Tobias was like on the way back from his honeymoon. So I had to do the drafting again this year. 
So what, when we when we fail, it's going to be your fault, George. Well, t- Tobias is slowly correcting things, but I had I had the Bears defense on our team, and then Tobias also has added former Bear Mitch Trubisky onto our roster. I did not have Trubisky. He is a quarterback for the uh, Steelers now. I'm not quite sure why Tobias did that. I'm sure we will find out. All will be revealed. Let us talk <laughs> some opera. Huddle up. Let's go inside the huddle. Opera box score may be uh, an opera Philadelphia podcast, but Chicago is a countertenor town. And mm. uh, later this month, uh, we are getting Aria Nussbaum Cohn uh, at Music of the Broke singing Handel's last oratorio, Jephthah. Uh, as you remember, if you're a longtime listener, Aria joined us on the OBS right after winning the Met competition and then came back a year later to give us an update on his time in Houston right after Hurricane Harvey. He now returns to OBS four years later on the occasion of coming to Chicago uh, to sing in Jephthah and also on the heels of an incredible season, which included his Met debut in Brett Dean's Hamlet. Uh, we'll jump right into the conversation after we hear a little bit of Aria singing I Know a Bank from a Midsummer Night's Dream. This is uh, from the Ad- Adelaide <laughs> the Adelaide Festival in Australia uh, with the Adelaide Symphony Orchestra conducted by Paul Kildea, recorded last February. So it was four years ago that we last talked, and some things have happened to you in the past four years. Um, you got married, uh, and you became like the poster child of American countertenors, <laughs> and you got to sing in a brand new production at the Metropolitan Opera of Brett Dean's Hamlet, uh, yeah. where you played... Uh, I forget. You play Rosencrantz or Guildenstern? Rosencrantz. Okay. Well, that's part of the joke, right? It's hard to know which uh, who's who. <laughs> With Christopher Lowry, uh, yeah. and you are now coming to Chicago. By the time this airs, you will already be in Chicago uh, to sing with uh, a group you probably heard about when you were like, you know, coming up in the world. Oh uh, yeah, in <laughs> Chicago they have like this this band that does you know handle oratorios. <laughs> Uh, I'm sure you're getting these types of gigs all the time now where like, yeah, I remember like knowing about that group and now you're invited to sing with them and you're like a principal artist. So um, it's been it's been a ride for these past couple of years for you, right? Yes, that's for sure. Great to be back with you, Oliver, and back with everyone at OBS. Um, so I guess I don't know. I guess we should start with the Met because um, I remember seeing that. And not knowing if I was going to like it because everybody knows I'm not like a new music person, but it was such uh, a engaging show to watch. Uh, it was so well directed and such a great, I mean, it was a piece of film almost, you know? Yeah. And Alan Clayton, man, oh. what, who, where, like, where did where he does come, it come from? from? <laughs> Honest to God, he is, I mean, truly in his performance in that role was a complete tour de force. 
you know, if there's ever been one on the operatic stage. Yeah. And he is just, it all, I think his artistry and everything feels so honest. And part of it is just because he has no ego. He is just the nicest guy. He was on stage for all but maybe 20 minutes of this marathon of a modern opera and the second he runs off stage he's coming over and giving us hugs and saying hey guys how you doing and that you know he's just the sweetest guy it seems like a drug addle performance (laughs) in the best way (laughs) truly i don't know how he did it we were all just completely in awe and he made it look so easy to us you know it was really amazing well, it was really, you know, there was a lot of detail and lots of mm. movement in this. And you got to sing with friend of the show, Christopher Lowry, as um, Rosencrantz, and he was Gillenstern. Yeah. And you guys were always, like, in major seconds together? Yes, like, yes. Ma- yeah. Never quite together, but always pretty yeah. close. <laughs> yeah. And you guys are pretty much same in height. And yes. you're both, you know... I don't want to say pasty white guys, but you know. Uh... Oh, it's fair. <laughs> I won't. Cannot confirm nor deny. <laughs> <laughs> what was it like? I mean, what was the rehearsal process like? And, you know, how much time did you have to spend with Christopher to, like, move like him and, you know, just be so in sync with him, you know? Yeah, it was great. It was something, you know, the countertenor who, were, Chris originated his role in the opera and the countertenor who originated my role looked nothing like Chris was, you know, six inches shorter and very different coloring. But once they realized that he and I looked like we almost could be different sides of the same coin and we have Mm -hmm. a similar haircut, even, you know, it all sort of just worked naturally. Um, They really wanted us to move in sync and be kind of a mirror image of each other. So thankfully, because it was a new production at the Met, we had quite a long rehearsal period. I think it was seven weeks, something like that, six, seven weeks. So um, yeah, just a lot of time working out, um, how, how to move in sync. And we just had all sorts of little subtle ways of communicating and, and all these times where we'd be moving, you know, sort of mirror image of each other. And we'd be like ever so slightly touching our legs in a way that the audience wouldn't really tell, but then we could know exactly when the other person is moving and really make it look seamless. But we had a lot of fun together. Chris is a great guy and uh, is now a dear friend. And, and we spent a lot of time together outside the rehearsal room too. So it all the the kind of twin relationship grew uh, over the couple of months, and it was. But I mean, was there was some a, yeah. kind of some kind of special training that you guys had, like special movement, like just work with you guys? Because it really was one of the exciting things about that seeing you guys on the stage together. You know, it was really, yeah. Really we had well-synced. a great assistant director, Denny Sayers, who was also a movement director and is a dancer, and was just really well attuned to kind of helping us in every way she could. And uh, yeah, I mean, it was just in the normal rehearsals, but she really had an eye for that. And uh, I think it all came together in, in a great way. So would that have been your Met debut, like professional debut? It was, yeah. That was my first role at the Met, which was also a real full circle, kind of crazy, uh, just well, there's exciting other things I wanna, experience. I want to talk about that experience, but also just to remind people that you won the Met uh, National Council Editions, now the LaFont competition back in 2017 with uh, Jonathan Dove's um, flight aria, the refugee aria. Yeah. And uh, I just would assume that in the interim, you would have been covering, you know, Andreas Scholl or Justin Davies or something. Did you ever, were those opportunities there for you? No, they never asked me to cover anything, um, which in a way I'm kind of grateful to just be sort of given the opportunity, obviously, to come back to the Met for the first time to sing a role is, is really exciting. Things are, you know, they also just plan things so far out that they offered me this contract to do this Hamlet soon after that competition five years ago, um, hmm. which at the time was 
the craziest phone call. I mean, I was, I was a young artist in Houston when I got that phone call. I believe it was fall 2017. And at that point, I didn't have any future contracts anywhere. Um, and to have the first one on the docket for future years be a debut at the Met was really um, just unbelievable. And that was ultimately my greatest dream in this whole career. The, that was the touchstone I wanted to finally reach one day was making my Met debut. And actually, I, I tore off the edge of the ticket stub from the first opera I had gone to see at the Met when I saw my first opera in college. And I said, I'm going to sing at the Met one day and I'm going to carry this around with me every day until I do. And I carried <laughs> that around with me in my wallet till opening night of Hamlet. Um, so, you know, needless to say, obviously, it was very exciting for me to make that debut and, and to now aspire to the next sort of summit, hopefully to climb, obviously. Um, I, I feel very lucky. To sing on The Voice. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> exactly exactly that's the ultimate dream yeah (laughs) um so i you know every time i see your name out there i always like try to read the reviews and everybody basically says the same thing uh about your singing (laughs) that you know the sound is just impressive that you know it has a cut um and that you have a lot of intention in your singing and that you have such a impressive stage presence um do you feel like that's the right characterization are you trying to go for something else or is that like yeah like i'll bring i'll bring the sound you know go ahead you know give me an orchestra i mean not every countertenor can do it outside of a period band you know yeah i mean those are definitely all things i strive for my ultimate goal i would say is just to sing beautifully Mm -hmm. and um a compliment i get sometimes from kind of opera fans is you know, I've always hated countertenors, but I loved your performance or I loved Mm. listening to you. And that's my favorite compliment because my goal is not to sound like a countertenor, but Mm. just to sing beautifully and have, you know, countertenor singing be able to stand on its own next to any other voice type instead of being something that can sometimes get sort of grouped on the side. Um, So I'm thrilled with all of those, you know, kind of characterizations. Um, But I think a lot of it too comes from just the singers that I admire um, and have admired and, and what they bring to the stage and bringing that kind of beauty of tone and also and that presence and, and dramatic conviction no matter what you're singing. But that to me is the ultimate point of everything that we do. If I go to an, an opera or concert and there's this beautiful singing, but I don't feel moved, I'm kind of disappointed. You know, that's just uh, singing a bunch of accurate pitches, whatever, without anything behind it to me isn't really worth anything. So trying to bring that conviction um, that's at least what I go to the theater for. And that's what I strive to bring, um, on the stage. Obviously it's always a work in progress, but, um, but yeah, I mean, those are all great qualities that I'm very pleased to be, um, kind of loud yeah, for, I mean, obviously. I mean, we could talk about your actual, what you look like when you sing. Cause I think it's part mm-hmm. of the package, but you are, a, you're a big guy. What are you like? Well, six? that's the other thing. I'm six, yeah. two, I'm six, yeah. two broad shouldered. I am not your typical counter tenor. Um, no. You know, almost a foot you're not, taller. You're not than these, these sopranists that are coming out these days. That exactly, like, look good, that's a like very good different dress. thing. <laughs> good for them. That is not what I have any intention of doing. <laughs> it's not for me. I don't think I could uh, dress and drag very convincingly yeah. on the opera stage. <laughs> but I mean, even when I heard you in 2017, like back when you know you were before you even did that Met competition, I noticed in your stage presence, just even when you're in a concert situation like this um 
Julius Caesar that you did in Russia, which people can watch on YouTube. Um, you're in it, like, you know, like you have a lot of, like from the neck up, you have a lot of acting, you know? Mm. And I don't know if you, got that, if you got that training from somebody, like this is how you look when you sing. Like this is what you can do with your eyebrows. This is what you can do with your jaw. This is what you can do with like how, the way you hold your head up, you know? Yeah, I don't think I received any specific training in that, but I've been able to do, and I have had a kind of, uncon, or I had an unconventional path to a career in music. I don't have a music degree, so... You know, I studied history at Princeton. I That's my only actual degree. So I don't have that much formal training, but I quickly kind of discovered that I could learn a lot by listening and learn a lot by watching. And um, it's one of the biggest pieces of advice that I give to young singers when they ask me for advice is just soak up everything around you as much as you can. And, you know, when I first went to an opera at the Met, that was where I saw my first opera while I was in college and decided I wanted to give this a try. I loved it. And then when I was living in New York after school, trying to kind of get things together, I went to every production that the Met did those seasons at least once. And I tried to go multiple times to each one and see how different singers were feeling on different nights, maybe. And you can see, you know, oh, the tenor is not an as great voice tonight, but interesting. Look at how he's pacing himself through this or look at what he's bringing instead to compensate for that. Or, And I think I just was able to learn a lot by watching and and listening. And one of the singers who I well, not one of, the singer who I admire by far the most, who I know you are a very devout lover of too, Oliver. And I'm so sad I never got to see her sing live, but is Lorraine Hunt-Lieberson, who brought this poise, conviction, and just command, no matter what the music was that she was singing, including all of this kind of Handel oratorio repertoire all of these concert works that some people can get away with just going and standing on stage and singing with their score in front of them. Even if she was standing there with a the score, and again, I never got to see her sing live, but this is just from all the recordings and, and whatnot I've been able to soak up. She brought this kind of earth-shattering conviction and just made the ultimate case for this music, which is something that I hold very dear and, and just think is very important as a countertenor, you're always sort of an ambassador for Baroque music and Handel can get a bad rap. A lot of people saying it's undramatic, it's boring, it's this, that. And someone like Lorraine really showed just how spectacularly vital in a dramatic sense this music can be. And that's definitely something that I aspire to sort of carry on that tradition in the way. Well, we have to talk about Handel in a moment, but I did want to just stick on the topic of the Met for a little bit longer um, yeah. Do you have a manager or a very trusted set of ears that goes into the house and says, you know, that's too much or that's not enough or, you know, the tone needs to be covered more or anything like that, that type of, you know, counsel? Yeah, I have a great manager, Bill Pallant, um, who's been kind of by my side since the beginning and since even before the beginning, he he took an interest in me while I was still a history undergrad and, and started advising me and sort of helping me along. Um, and he's someone who I definitely get that from, but I'll say too, I'm, uh, or, you know, at least I like to think of myself as a collegial person. And I, one of my favorite things about this career is just meeting lots of new, interesting and exciting people kind of gig to gig. And I'm always one to lean on my colleagues as well. I'll say, you know, something like the Met when, you know, when we were in the first Zitz probe and we're singing on stage for the first time with the orchestra, this, that, you know, whatever other colleagues were in the house, as soon as they, you know, 
come back uh, off uh, on stage during the break or whatever, I'm going over to ask them, oh, how was the balance on this? Or my covers, you know, asking my understudy, oh, how was the balance on this? You know, just really leaning on other colleagues, I think, um, is something I've found to be really helpful. And, and thankfully, probably 99% of the people I've worked with so far have been lovely collegial people who are always happy to kind of help with that feedback too. So, yeah. I mean, I guess the concern and the reason why I bring it up is because uh, I love the tone of your voice. And I just wonder if you are being very protective of it, you know, because the spaces you're being asked to sing in are not spaces we normally hear countertenors in. And there are many countertenors who, not many, but there are now a number of countertenors who have sung at the Met. And we hear how they sound different in that space than how they sound, you know, on a recording or mm. in a smaller venue, you know. And I think that your your the size of voice of your voice just might be bigger than theirs, so maybe it's not a concern. But I wonder if you feel the temptation if when you are in a space like that's like, oh, maybe we need to like do this extra gear, you know? Yeah, that's a great question. I think I'm fortunate because I because I'm one of the few countertenors who got to do young artist programs in major opera houses. Most countertenors just don't get the chance to sing on those big stages very often, and so then when you mm -hmm. get placed on a stage like the Met, you feel like, oh, I have to push and do this and fill the space. Um, whereas I got to be, I think, only the fourth countertenor in the Adler program in San Francisco and the first one in Houston. And so I just had the chance to sing, you know, all of these stage auditions and whatnot. You just had a lot of, you know, yeah, honestly, just a lot more experience singing on those big stages. And also just getting to listen. This is what I was talking about, listening. It's so important to me to listen to other people and to hear the singers whose voices I know really well, the other members of the artist program, as soon as I was, you know, done with my audition on those days, I would go out and listen in the house and evaluate and sort of see how, oh, they're just singing the way they do in the rehearsal room and you can hear them just fine. I'm going to do the same thing. Um, I think singing in the big houses, you just have to sing the way you sing. I'm definitely fortunate just being 6'2", broad-shouldered countertenor, I think, my voice does just naturally have a little bit more of that cut than if I were, you know, a foot shorter and a much more kind of diminutive figure. Um, but so far, I, I'll say too, my manager has been very intentional too about helping me pace um, what assignments I'm accepting and, you know, not necessarily singing these huge roles in the huge houses immediately, mm -hmm. but having the chance either singing those kind of more small medium roles in the big houses, or if I am going to sing a big role in a big house first, singing it in a smaller house, getting to know the role knowing I can trust my voice in that role. So that then when the time is coming up to sing a role like Julius Caesar, for example, I've already done it in X, Y, Z places to kind of build up that confidence and comfort in a way to just know I can go in and sing the way I sing and I'll be heard and um, and I just have to bring to it what I do and what I do well. Um, so so I've been it, it's been great having Bill to really kind of guide me through everything and one of the reasons I went with him when I first when I won the Met competition I got this great Times review. All these managers started contacting me. You know I went from this like nobody to all of a sudden like, Oh, this guy's probably going to have a career. There's money to be made off of him. <laughs> and there were managers who were like handing me contracts across the table and saying, I want you to do this role and this role and this role and this role. And we're going to get you this and this now. And I was like, I'm 23 years old. Like, I don't know what I'm doing yet. I need someone. And Bill was, it's all about 
Building a career is like building a house. First, you have to place the foundation brick by brick by brick, and you slowly build up. And those, those are the careers that I really admire because those are the careers that stand the test of time and that last instead of careers where someone's a flash in a pan. And I think, sadly, a lot of people do get kind of taken advantage of in our industry where if you're this hot young talent, it's easy for people to just throw you up doing things you might not necessarily be ready for. Um, and then if they don't go well, you don't have the future opportunities that you would have been ready for in five years or 10 years. So I'm definitely cognizant of just building that foundation and, and being ready for the bigger opportunities when they come. Knock on wood, so far it's, it seems to be going pretty well and, and hopefully there won't be any flops, but, but we'll see. You never know. Yeah. Well, what's interesting to me so far is just like looking at your assignments and um, you know, you're, you're carving a very unique career. Meanwhile, you know, there are these countertenors who just are drilling down into the Baroque repertoire. And because Handel is busy right now, they're like, okay, let's, who is this, who's this Vinci guy? You know, who's this Leo guy, yeah. you know? And just like trying to find all the bizarro repertoire. And there's even that Parnassus Productions, the Max Chenchich yeah. band that like, it's just like, okay, we're going to find some bizarro random opera and we're going to stage yeah. it and we're going to record it. And like, here are all my artists, you know, which I think yeah. is so cool. And like, God yeah. bless people who are doing that, you know, scholarly work, but you're getting like different things to do. I mean, do, would you like yeah. to go down a broke rabbit hole or are you, are, is your brand going to be more like, I'll do this Brett Dean thing? <laughs> I love the way it's been going so far with a great mix of the Baroque and this contemporary stuff. I think obviously the Brett Dean was Hamlet. So that's a very old story, but I'm also going to have the chance to be part of some stories in the next couple of years where there are really modern stories and new stories being told. Um, and I love, 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 love getting to be a part of that. I think musically and intellectually, it just really scratches an itch for me too. Um, it is so much more work to prepare something like Hamlet than any Handel opera. And there's always a moment in that preparation where I'm like, God, why don't I just do more of this Baroque stuff that I can pick up, <laughs> you know, I could I could pick up a handle opera, play through it twice, and I already start to have a handle on how it goes, whereas some of this contemporary stuff really takes, honestly, months and months of work of just laying the groundwork of the rhythms and then introducing the pitches and just, you know, it's just a lot more prep, but the satisfaction when, you, when it finally does come together to me is so much greater um, that I love having a, a mix of those things and yeah, I'm, I'm very grateful to, to have had these opportunities to kind of start building a brand, right, of of doing new music as well as Baroque and not just Baroque rabbit hole, as you were saying, but singing some of these big handle heroes and whatnot. And then, and then also getting to do the, these contemporary works. And I love that. And, and I'm just really hoping it continues. I should mention now, before I forget that you made this recording of, um, poems of life by, mm -hmm. uh, Kenneth Fuchs. Uh, I actually haven't heard it, but what, how would you categorize that work? It's beautiful. I loved singing that cycle. Um, it was another, it was a sort of right place, right time opportunity. I stepped in at the last minute to premiere it with the Virginia Symphony, and then we recorded it with the London Symphony. Um, but it's just this beautiful, lush, kind of Bernstein-y um, musical language set with this beautiful poetry about um, love and death and, and losing a loved one. Um, beautiful poetry by Judith G. Wolfe. And um, it was just, yeah, it was a really great experience. And to my great fortune, that CD, which was the first one I got to be a part of, 
then won a Grammy, which was just wild. It won the Grammy for Best Classical Compendium in uh, 2018, um, which is the award for, you know, kind of albums with multiple soloists and multiple works, like a couple of concertos, those those sorts of uh, CDs. And um, definitely right place, right time, and, and just felt very lucky that it also, I mean, I jumped in last minute, but the music really did fit my voice pretty well and, and fit my kind of artistic sensibilities in a wonderful way. I, I just felt really lucky to be a part of that one. Hmm. Well, you're in Chicago, or you're coming to Chicago very shortly to sing with Music of the Broke, uh, Jane Glover conducting, Dame Jane Glover, um, Handel's last oratorio? Is that what Yeah. The, yeah. Uh, it's called Jephthah, and uh, the title role is for a tenor, Jephthah, but you sing the character of Hamor. Is that how you say his name? Yeah, Hamor, yeah. So, yeah, I don't know who's seen this Jephthah thing. I'm sure there are some people in England. It's like, of course, we see Jephthah every year, you know, but uh, it's definitely going to be my <laughs> first time. I don't know time. where that is. <laughs> It'll be my first time, too. <laughs> um, anything you could say about, um, well, either singing with Jane or... Uh, with this piece and something you might have discovered about, you know, late, 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 late Handel? Yeah, uh, I'm really excited for this one. I know that Dame Glover is a big champion of this oratorio and has been for a long time. And so I'm very excited to get in the rehearsal room with her because I know she's going to bring just this incredible passion for it um, to, to the rehearsals and to the performances. But I think it's it's just an interesting piece because it's Handel's last oratorio and he was writing it as he was going blind and uh, the story goes that he was really just rushing to finish it while he could just barely see uh, and just barely, honestly, write out his final, this final oratorio, final man's manuscript. And it really kind of taps into some of those themes of, again, I mean, it's the sort of classic themes, but of death and love and loss and, and all of these things. And um Probably the most famous aria from it is the tenor gets to sing the title role, Waft Her Angels Through the Skies. It's just so beautiful. There's a great recording of Richard Croft singing it uh, on YouTube from a couple years ago. And uh, yeah, I think it's just one of those beautiful times where, you know, art imitates life, life imitates art, where Handel's writing about these themes that are very uh, personal for him at that time in his life. And, and I think uh, that really makes it special. So Jephthah is going to be performed uh, by Music of the Broke here in Chicago on September 18th and September 19th. That's this weekend, if you're listening, when the podcast drops. Well, Arya Nussbaum-Cohen, so the next time you come on, uh, you have reached the next... We're not going to invite you back on until you've reached that next summit. Uh, <laughs> and, <laughs> and we have to, we have to decide what, what that next summit is. No, exactly. you're saying... You'll sing Aida at Arena de Verona without blackface. That'll be your Well, way. guess what, Oliver? That's on the docket for next summer. So, <laughs> no, we might have to wait a little bit longer for that one. In fact, this is probably time for me to say my farewell to the audiences, <laughs> if that's the case. No, it's just great to be back with you, Oliver.
Just a little bit of Aria's version of Batachito from Julius Caesar. Uh, that was from a performance in September of last year with the State Chamber Orchestra of Russia, conducted by Christopher Moulds. Uh, that was recorded in Moscow uh, before things went down. Uh, also in that cast, friend of the show, Amanda Forsyth. Start planning your trip for the return of Festival O, Opera Philadelphia's 12-day celebration of opera, September 21st through October 2nd, in venues across the city of brotherly love. See Lawrence Brownlee make his role debut as Rodrigo in Rossini's Otello, with Daniela Mack as Desdemona, Alex Schrader as Iago, and the U.S. debut of South African tenor Kaniso Gwensane in the title role. You'll also see Toshio Hosokawa's The Raven in a new interactive production from director Aria Umezawa and starring mezzo Kristen Choi, and the world premiere of Black Lodge, part film screening and part industrial rock opera concert from Beth Morrison Projects and composer David T. Little. There's also the first ever Opera on Film, a series of more than 30 cinematic operas on the big screen, featuring names like John Holliday, Patricia Rossette, Tilda Swinton, William Kentridge, Sasha Velour, and even Beyonce in Carmen, a hip opera. Festival O22, September 21st through October 2nd in Philadelphia. Check out the schedule at operaphila.org. Ah, free throw. My name is Michael Skarkey. I'm a countertenor from Houston, Texas. And you're in Chicago. Why? I'm in Chicago because I'm performing the role of Otone in Monteverdi's Popea with Haymarket Opera. Well, you're the perfect guest for our free throw segment because you actually used to be an athlete. I think you're still very athletic, but you used to play which sports? Uh, I used to play... A lot of football and basketball, um, but I play a number of sports as well. You play golf right now. That's right. Lots of golf. Okay. So you're a countertenor with a sort of a football player build. Um, if you could relate uh, early Baroque opera like Monteverdi uh, to a sport or to an era in sports, what would that be? Ooh. Well, I'd say it is easy to relate Baroque opera to football. Uh, to old-timey football. To old-timey football, yes. right. Um, and I think there's a number of reasons why, but um, I would say the main reason is because in Baroque opera, there are quite a few players. There's so many characters in these shows, um, and it's very similar to football in that there are so many players on the field that have these different jobs to do. But in order for a team to work as a well-oiled machine and to win games, they all have to play together, but also be good as individuals. But then there are certain individuals that always shine like the quarterback. Right. And so in, in our show, for example, we have Popea, the title role, who would be the quarterback, um, and Nero, who would maybe be the running back. They would be both important, vitally important players. And then, of course, you've got some chorus who could maybe be offensive line or something okay, like so that. Okay, so Otone, as Popea's husband, uh, what... What role does he play if he was on a football team? Oh, gosh. Otone. Um, yeah. He's the sad boy who gets broken up with, but still vitally important to the story. So I would say he's such a defensive guy, he's maybe a middle linebacker. All right. 
Um, and I think another thing that's cool about um, the idea of football is that there used to be football without all the padding and with like the pigskin, uh, actual pigskin football. Right. So like in Broke Opera, we have this uh, gut string instrument. <laughs> yeah. So we are getting back to flesh and things that are just a little bit softer and less strong. And nowadays, like the modern opera, the Metropolitan Opera, you have all the helmets and all the, you know, the padding and uh, all the concussions. Right. Yeah. And and no the, concussions and broke opera. And the money. Yes, yes exactly. <laughs> okay, so um, can you relate any of your performing experiences to experiences you might have had as an athlete? Ooh. Well, I would say a lot of my role is I, I played middle linebacker personally in football. Um, and I think it was, it was a really important role um, to be a leader and to be somebody who called plays and somebody who um, made sure that everybody was doing their job. And so I think um, in Baroque opera uh, in particular, and in, in my role, um, I think I have to have a lot of leadership in the way that I, I lead my character into other people. Cause otherwise they can't play their lines uh, and they can't, they can't play their characters well if I'm not um, giving them something to work with. So I think a lot of acting um, and a lot of, working through my character in a way that's that's smart okay gives other people but how the opportunity the more let's talk i mean let's talk about the physical aspect of it like do you have like the same type of anxiety do you have the same fear of like oh am i in shape today or like you know testing your you know your range in the morning or like as if you were testing your jumps or testing your your throw or something like that oh yeah. absolutely yeah i think um, every given day, any given day that you're playing. So my sports terminology. Yeah, <laughs> it's great. Yeah. So I played a lot of uh, basketball in high school as well. And yeah, I remember waking up on game days and like I wanted to feel my best. And, and I think conserving my body movements and making sure that I was limber before games, um, going through warmups in a way that was helpful but not overextending would be so similar to the way that I would perform and prepare for an opera. Little talking. Um, when I walk through my staging, it's all making sure that I, for like fight calls, those kind of things. You, you, do, the, you do the movements, but you have to take care of yourself in the same way. So um, you're one of the few examples I know of, of somebody who did a pay to sing, and it actually was a calculated uh, risk that paid off. Right. Um, can you talk about any experiences where... Uh, a risk paid off or you made an investment early on uh, that came through in the future. I'm speaking right now of the Haymarket Opera where you're um, in a principal role. And I met you when you were doing their young artist program or their, um, their summer workshop, I don't know, like five years ago or yeah. something like that. Right. I think um, something I, I talk a lot about with my high schoolers, I teach a lot of high schoolers, is that um, – I think there is a lot of investment into to what we do, and and I was fortunate to invest my time with Haymarket and and received a lot of benefit out of it. Um, but I think if you're if you're relating it to sports, it's the same thing I would say as uh, spending time in the weight room and spending time doing the drills and the hard things that really, uh, for lack of a better term, they suck. Yeah. Um, but you have to you have to spend that time and this effort. Um, putting in the extra hours and, and it, you can talk to any athlete. They, they, they really do, um, mind that time. They, they think that that time is going to be more important to what they do on the outcome of a game 
or of a playoff um, situation. But do elite athletes ever have a financial stake, like investing? In Fair. Them? Yeah. I think, yeah, definitely maybe not elite athletes, pro maybe athletes. Like tennis, you have right. Like well, and, and it reminds me, women, yeah. yeah, it reminds me of when I was wanting to be a college football player, college uh, basketball player. I used to spend money going to camps, meeting high or college scouts and trying to invest my time in that way. And so those things, fortunately, my parents were able to afford those things for me. But for somebody who maybe from, comes from an underprivileged community, um, they might not have those opportunities. And so I think, um, yeah, definitely you have to, you have to invest your time and your money. And so it doesn't just come from the skill set that you have, but it also comes from sometimes just having to make the right connection. So you are a very handsome guy, which is why you're in my apartment right now. Um, <laughs> you uh, have a beautiful voice, and we heard a little bit of it coming into this free throw that uh, Kabali are you sing so well. Um, and you get a lot of work as a, a choral singer. You did the Bochus 8 Foundation, and I don't know how many times I've seen you doing recording projects and concertizing with some of the most elite groups out there. Can you talk about having this diversified career and what your sort of end game is? Sure. Yeah, I think for me, um, and, and for countertenors across the board, I think it, it, it becomes a really tough thing for us to just pigeonhole ourselves into a certain field. So whether that be opera or just choral stuff or just oratorio, we there are limited opportunities for this voice type. And so my goal in, in creating a diversified repertoire is not only because I love to sing opera and I love to perform choral uh, repertoire, it also comes from a place of realistically I have to pay pay my bills. And so it's um, trying to to blend a career that allows me to sing year, uh, throughout the entire year, um, whether that be a Messiah gig or a uh, or a Cavalli opera, it really just, um, it has to be diversified for me to work. Um, I can't do a year long young artist program and I, it would be really hard for me to. Um, and so, uh, but at the end of the day, I adore all of the different repertoire. And I think my voice is versatile enough where I can extend it into different performance practices. Um, like for example, I recently went to South Korea and I was able to sing, uh, a 75 minute concert of Korean art song. And I can tell you that it was very different from uh, Monteverdi opera, but um, nonetheless, I think it was just as rewarding, um, but in a completely different way. Last question. Um, I know you're a family guy and we always come back to this topic on Opera Box Go. Can you tell us about uh, being a father and uh, gigging and what your support system is that allows you to do that? Right. Well, first of all, I'll say that I'm extremely grateful to my wife, um, who I call my sugar mama, because she uh, she stays home and she she pays a lot of our bills and Jenny, we're in a fight. Uh, <laughs> and she she watches our our baby girl. Um, and you know, I'm very fortunate that we have lots of family back home in Houston to to take some of that burden off of her. Um, but at the end of the day, she knows that I'm absolutely in love with what I do. Um, and she knows that it's a sacrifice that, uh, she's, it's a sacrifice she's willing to make because she knows that I, I care about my career and the people I get to meet and the music that I get to sing. Um, and so I spent 
I think 14 out of 17 weeks away this summer, um, which was an enormous challenge. Um, it kind of makes me, uh, my throat get tight as I talk about it, but I, I'm just really grateful, um, for the people who trust me to come, but also for the people who stay home and trust me to do the right thing when I'm gone and, uh, to support me and what I do. Well, to bring it back to Popea, Otone was on a long trip and he comes back and, uh, yeah, he is rewarded. <laughs> right. Right. Rewarded is a strong term. <laughs> Countertenor Michael Skarki with lutenist, in this case, theoboist, Brandon Aker, performing a little bit of music from Cavalli's La Calisto. This just in, the two-minute drill. All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know about what happened in opera land this week. Stage director Jose Maria Condemi has posted a complaint on Facebook that the current revival of Hernani at Lyric Opera of Chicago, which he was not invited to direct, is his intellectual property. Quote, Over the last weeks, I have watched with grief as photos of my production showing my ideas on display with not even a mention of my name on the website, promotional materials, etc. In response, Lyric Opera has made no comment. At a recent gala at the Arena di Verona, Placido Domingo gave a performance so bad that he had to send an apology letter to the mayor. (laughs) I recognize that during those performances, I overexerted myself, said Domingo. The conductor baritone was unable to sing the final scene of Macbeth, which was part of the program he picked out for himself, and later conducted a selection from Turandot so badly that the orchestra refused to stand for bows. Overexerted? That's one word for it. Russian director Alexander Malushnikov has been fired from the Bolshoi after speaking out against the war in Ukraine. 
Malashnikov joins Timothy Kolyabin and Kirill Serebrenikov, whose productions were also cancelled earlier this year due to their anti-war stances. British tenor Lawrence Kilsby won first prize at the Wigmore Hall Song Competition, along with £10,000. The third place prize of £2,500 went to American tenor John Matthew Myers, who also won the Richard Tauber Prize for the Best Interpretation of Schubert Leader for an additional £3,000. The jury consisted of performers and vocal experts, including Roberta Alexander, Olaf Baer, Hugh Canning, Bernarda Fink, Graham Johnson, Dame Felicity Lott, and Claren McFadden. Forbes has named Guatemalan soprano Adriana Gonzalez as one of the 100 most powerful women in Central America for the second year in a row. This is incredible. Citing her 2019 Operalia wins and her first prize victory in the 2016 Otto Edelman competition. Gonzalez is currently singing the powerful woman role of Michaela in the Robert <laughs> Carson production of Carmen at Dutch National Opera. Unsung Kim led Nadine Sierra, Michael Fabiano, friend of the show Lucas Meacham, and New Zealand, oh, Neo Zealander Samoan tenor Pene Pate in a varied program of opera, musical theater, and Maori haka for San Francisco Opera's centennial celebration. The San Francisco Chronicle's David Cosman reported. Nothing on the program lingered as vividly in the memory as the sight of tenor Penepati, bare-chested, barefoot, clad only in a traditional skirt, stomping the stage with rhythmic ferocity and delivering a robust vocal display on the folk song Ate Tarakihi, accompanied by traditional physical gestures, such as fluttering hands and a protruding tongue. Oof! Calm down, Davy boy! Crunching the numbers. <laughs> Companies like the Met may be struggling, but the Salzburg Festival says that audience attendance has returned to pre-pandemic levels with around 96% of seats occupied this past summer. Said executive director Lukas Krepatz, had not four performances been canceled for health reasons, a new record would have been achieved. Demand for the arts is unbroken. Staatstheater Meiningen has announced that Killian Farrell will become their new music director, taking over from Philippe Bach in 2023. Farrell will be the first Irish general music director to serve in a German theater. Opera Philadelphia, in the news again, has announced Courtney Bryan as their new composer in residence. Bryan extends a bold and conscious artistic expression, carving out a distinguished and touching creativity that is desperately needed, said Opera Philadelphia's director of new works and friend of the show, Sarah Williams. Our industry will be all the better for, for her exploration and voice in opera. American mezzo Suzanne Menser has announced that she will be retiring from the opera stage. In a Facebook post, Menser said that she was, quote, going out on my own terms at 65 years of age. On the disabled list, due to illness, the Wiener Staatsoper changed their season opener from Alevi's La Juive, starring Roberto Alagna and Sonia Yoncheva, to La Boheme, starring Anna Netrebko and Vittorio Grigolo. Following the withdrawal, Yoncheva posted a picture of herself receiving treatment in the hospital to refute claims that she was actually secretly healthy. Russian soprano Svetlana Sojda-Televa will replace Eva Maria Westbrook in the title role of Shostakovich's Lady Macbeth of Mitsensk, making her Met debut. Lady Macbeth opens later this month. Exit stage right. The opera world paid tribute to the late Queen Elizabeth II through various posts on social media, 
program changes and musical tributes over the past week. The Royal Opera House also announced that it would cancel its September 19th performance, which is the same day as the Queen's funeral. Founder and director of the Bone Festival for 40 years, Kader Hassisi has passed away at the age of 72 after contracting COVID. Hassisi was one of the pillars of the revival of early music in France and was well known for supporting the careers of renowned artists like René Jacob, Emmanuel Haim, and Philippe Jaruski. Tenor Marion Talaba has died at the age of 45. In 2004, he joined the ensemble of the Wiener Staatsoper and remained there until 2016, performing such roles as Kavaradosi, Tichon in Katya Kabanova, Dimitri in Boris Gudinov, Hermann in Pikdam, among others. No cause of death has been given. And on this day, September 12th in 1799, it was the first performance of Luigi Cherubini's La Prisonnière in Paris. In 1842, Austrian contralto Marianne Brandt was born. The story goes that during a performance at the Met in Fidelio, Lottie Lehmann, who could not endure Brandt's success in one of her favorite roles, stationed herself at the back of the stage. And just before the great duet, Lehmann broke out into loud, raucous laughter, causing Brandt to miss her cue. In 1887, Romanian conductor George Genescu was born. In 1927, it was the first performance of Zygmunt Romberg's My Maryland in operetta. In 1938, the great American mezzo-soprano Tatiana Troianos was born in New York. And happy birthday to American conductor John Malcheri, also born in New York City in 1945. That is your two-minute Just a little bit of the gorgeous coloratura technique of Tatiana Troianos from The Veil Song from a live performance in 1980, Don Carlos at the Met. Summer is clearly over because the drill was packed this week. Maybe <laughs> oh. they, everyone was saving it for season eight. And, just wanted to... <laughs> and we left out some stories like the Bogdan, what his name is, response to oh, the, yeah, yeah, the, the, the Trepko protests and whatnot. So. Where, yeah, where where to begin? Well, I think the the first story that I found interesting, and maybe George is more the person to talk about it as a director. But I think this this little controversy that uh, seems to be just starting to brew concerning the um, Ernani director, or rather not director this not round, director. is is really interesting because uh, he he obviously you know helped create this production back in I think it was two thousand and nine. And um, I do remember I did go see Ernani. Uh, I looked in the program and uh, I noticed that the director, um, she seemed to be uh, really young, like too young to have been with the first uh the first uh, uh, production. And I, I remember thinking that was a little odd and that I might have just, you know, misinterpreted her age based on her photo. But apparently I was on to something because this is a, yeah. a very strange thing. And I, I think it's pretty unusual. You can correct me if I'm wrong, George. No, this this is definitely atypical. So as you say, 
Jose Maria Condemi, who I know, so he created a brand new production of Irinani back in 2009. And typically, the original creator, yes, they would get the first right of refusal on any revival of that opera, which is what Condemi expected. So it is strange that the lyric would do his original production, uh, but go with another director and, and still use the entire physical design of the whole thing. Yeah. And in this Facebook post, Condemi says, he's like, yeah, I looked at the contract and by the letter of the law, it's true that, uh, companies renting that production are obligated to hire him, but the originating company does not have that same recommendation. Mm. So like by the letter of the law, yeah, that's a goof. The intention clearly, I mean, almost any opera house would say, look, we we want to do this piece. He goes on to say that this, <laughs> I got to be careful here. You can read the Facebook post, but essentially that the lyric was saying, we want to go with a, a female director who knows how intentional or how sort of pointed that was in the conversation. That's, you know, certainly none of my business. But if you're if you're Jose Maria Condemi, you definitely feel burned. Yeah. And uh, I, I think it's it's interesting, too, that like no credit was given. And, and he, he claims he was never informed either that his production was even being used until presumably he, he saw it, you know, starting to be advertised all over the place. Um, I mean, I think that's all you want, ultimately, right? Is like, right. I think most of us, if we make something and we share it, we we just want. Well, he he even said he even said in his Facebook post, like, if he had gotten royalties and been credited in the program, he probably would have been totally fine with them, you know, going with a different director. Um, but uh, it was it, it's just a really odd situation, not something you necessarily expect out of a a big company like Lyric. Um, Granted, apparently the contract was, you know, uh, poorly written out on on Condemi's end, but still, it, it is very odd that that would would happen, especially for a big season opener like this that a lot is writing on. You know, it's a very visible production to pull something like this. Yeah, and and the lyric apparently has no comment. Yeah, yeah, it's it's pretty strange. I reached out to Lyric and they are, are not responding to this, uh, so we don't have their side of the story. So right now, all we have is what Condemi has to say, and I've been watching some of the uh, social media conversation mm-hmm. happening about it, and really, you see some of these people who are like, so, um, what's the word? misogynist uh that mm, the idea yeah. that that lyric is trying to actively recruit or you know diversify you know uh all levels of what they're doing uh comes up with resistance you know and people coming to the defense of condemi who for all likelihood maybe he's exactly right maybe he you know uh this is really ethically uh, the wrong thing to do you don't need to defend him by saying you know so what a woman, you know, like who cares about women, you know? So yeah, anyway, yeah. so. Well, and it, his whole point was like, great. If, if you want to, let's promote women. That's, that's awesome. That's great. Yeah. So let's give them brand new productions. Like yeah, don't exactly. have them rehash yeah, yeah. my stuff. Yeah. Right. Allow them to express themselves and to have their own ideas. Right. Let yeah. me yeah. do my thing. Let, they, let I me. I mean, I, I was there for opening night and it is a very expensive looking show. I mean, so I could see them not wanting to, 
you know, get rid of that production uh, because it looks very, very rich. Uh, the costumes were incredible. The set design is one of the most beautiful sets I've seen at Lyric uh, in a while. And the cast, I mean, you, you it's hard to put together four singers <laughs> as qualified to sing that. Tamara Wilson, <laughs> Russell Thomas, um, Quinn Kelsey, and Christian Van Horn. Now, mm-hmm. is it an opera worth being the prima of a season? Mm. Anyway, moving on. <laughs> That's a separate conversation. <laughs> uh, pl- this whole Plaza Domingo thing, I did not, I was not paying attention to the news Me when this neither. happened. But uh, how bizarro is that? That like, so it's like, strange. It's like, it's like <laughs> gala ostensibly to celebrate Plaza Domingo, and he creates the program, and he can't execute it. And not just like he can't execute it, because like, because like, uh, like sure, like he's he's an older singer like you know these kinds of things happen where your voice gives out you know uh and you have to be replaced in the last little chunk of time like that does happen that's not terribly unusual in and of itself but the the fact that on top of that he apparently conducted so badly that the orchestra refused to stand with him for the uh for the applause at the end is it that's really something look i i am not in the business of wishing failure on people that is no <laughs> way to move through this world right like sometimes yeah, yeah. as artists we think we get a free pass to be jerks to people because we're artists nothing can be further from the truth that mm. said it's like know thyself right and right. i mean that was domingo's apology it was like hmm. i overexerted myself could he have gone deeper into his heart in the apology probably yeah like this is the thing you apologize about you know your bad performance and not you know all the allegations of assault (laughs) and the weird involvement with the sex yoga cult like there's so much going on and like honestly i think there might be a connection i don't know if it's like psychologically like he's he's starting to feel the weight of the public eye on him finally feeling the consequences or maybe the orchestra is and that's the real reason why they didn't stand up i don't know um but uh, in any case this was a bizarre story and i can't believe that i like oliver i completely missed it until we were doing research today and it's so the weird. wildest story i've ever so, seen that the, the wildest story i thought from the drill was that the story about um Adriana Gonzalez. First of all, I think it's awesome that there's a list of the 100 most powerful <laughs> women in Central America. It's very specific. This is, I just thought this was fabulous. And and she's great. And she's an artist. And she's an opera singer as well. Not quite Two sure about the, the Mikael. Two years in a row. Back to back. Yeah. That's powerful. Either or that or, the, or, or the three-peat. Or Central America is lacking in powerful women. So, <laughs> we know that's not maybe true. maybe they should uh, call Sonia Yoncheva to represent uh, <laughs> ch- change her nationality to to Central American. <laughs> so Sonia Yoncheva and Roberto Lanya were supposed to uh, star in the revival of um, La Juive at right. yeah, yeah, yeah. and I guess Sonia Yoncheva got sick. I'm not sure if Roberto Lanya also got sick, but. Um, they decided to cancel the production altogether and replace yep. it with a bohem starring Anna Netrebko and other people like Victoria mm-hmm. Gagolo, who are both problematic in their own ways, as we know. <laughs> True. So um, Sonia Yoncheva was, uh, sent, shared a picture of herself on Instagram uh, with the caption, Sunny in Geneva. That was on September 7th. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And apparently she looked healthy in that picture mm-hmm. and she received a bunch of criticism for that picture so she posted another picture of herself on september 8th 
in the caption it said i am reading some of your comments and again i'm impressed how a word from a person agent and theater doesn't mean anything for some of you mostly i'm amazed how a singer is taken for granted i hate posting this kind of pictures because they concern my life and privacy. But for those who are starving for gossip, insta-pleasure, there we go. This mm-hmm. is me a few days ago at the Hospital of Neon. I'm sorry that this didn't give me the possibility to debut La Juive as planned. I'm feeling better, but not in a shape to participate in a show. Yeah. Well, I mean, look, first of all, not all illnesses are visible, right? Yeah, so, true. So what, what do we know? Um, I, I, it's gutsy, right, to change your season opener. Yeah. To a, yeah. a totally different production. I, I also every time I see Vittorio Grigolo, I I think it says Gigolo. And that's not, that's <laughs> yeah. nothing against him. <laughs> this is the real hard hitting journalism you turn to opera box score for. Yeah. Welcome to season eight, everybody. <laughs> I, I, I'm still also sweating a little bit after the David Cosman review in the san francisco chronicle I know. he well i mean i really he really did paint a picture there so for those he of us who couldn't hear we, he we certainly did yeah. we heard all the 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 bare flesh and sweat and bare feet and uh tongues <laughs> and fingers i felt it coming through that article <laughs> I, I mean i you know i know penne pati i want to get him on the show he he he's a big guy you know he's a very large man yeah, I mean, well, Fabulous I think it's singer. I, I will say like this is a great way to start their centennial. You know, I I think that you know bringing out this non-Western you know form into the opera house is the future of opera, and I I think it's really cool that a haka was performed uh, at San Fran. It's not just the uh, New Zealand All Blacks rugby team that does the haka. <laughs> Let us wrap this show up. Good call, bad call. On Opera Box Score. Good call, bad call. First one of season eight, Oliver Camacho. Well, we have to plug our guests' uh, goings on. So, once again, uh, thanks to Music of the Broke for giving me access to Arya Nusban Kohn and go check out Jephtha uh, coming later this month. And then check out Friend of the Show, Haymarket Opera Company's Coronation of Popea, also happening later this month. But my good call is that. On um, 9-11 yesterday for us, um, PBS in Chicago rebroadcast um, the Turandot with Ludmila Manostroiska, uh, which was so good. Um, mm. And then they rebroadcast the um, Verdi Requiem, which was the uh, opening concert of the 2021 season at the Met with Eileen Perez, Michelle DeYoung. Mm. Um, Matthew Polanzani and Eric Owens, all of whom are friends of the show, except for Eric Owens. So we need to get the hat trick there and get Eric Owens on the show. <laughs> he stole my uh, chair at a party once. That's a true story. A jerk. Yeah. Um, but anyway, it was that was also incredible. And I forgot that Eileen Perez was ridiculously good in that she was so mm-hmm. technically like flawless. She's singing all those floaty stuff like she was Lantine Price for the whole thing. And then busting out a really operatic Liberame to finish. Uh, it was a very emotional concert, and I remember how I felt watching it last year, but it, it still it still rings, that, that performance. Weston Williams. 
My good call is that uh, it was announced uh, fairly recently that uh, the famous uh, Sir George Schulte ring cycle is going to be re-released and remastered for Dolby Atmos. So if you are rich, uh, <laughs> this is the, your opportunity to hear that recording as has never been heard before. I mean, as, as a sound guy, nothing really fascinates me more than the epic of how they put together that recording and how they put it all on tapes and and figured out the uh, the casting over you know multiple uh, years and even eras of recording like Rheingold is in mono the rest are in stereo it was such a monumental achievement to get that thing out on record and it holds up so well with each each new digital remastering so one day if I'm rich and can afford an, an Atmos system in my home I would love to hear it in the full, complete uh, redigitization that they're doing right now. I have a call. I don't know if it's good or bad because I haven't seen it. Uh, Renee Fleming is in an IMAX movie. It's called Renee Fleming's Cities That Sing, colon, oh. Paris. And this is her performing at the uh, Théâtre du Châtelet with uh, Peter Bachawa. A couple other singers as well. It's directed by Robert Carson, which is kind of odd. I don't know if that I really <laughs> like. Do I want to see Renee Fleming's epiglottis like twenty feet long? <laughs> so it's really like a, a Paris Tourism Bureau type of movie with, uh, you know, with a concert interspersed in. And I I actually saw the first ten minutes of it. Uh, and oh, I actually, Oliver, I, that is a rude thing to say. No, no. And I will watch the rest of it. Uh, I, I'm, <laughs> I'm supposed to sort of like review it. So they want like my press quote. So I'll bet. Uh, yeah. So you'll see when you see the previous for this thing, you might see my name, Oliver Camacho of OBS. The first that? 10 minutes were great. <laughs> Four stars. Amazing. That is it for this week's edition of America's Talk radio show about opera. Our announcer is Norm Waddell. Visit normwaddell.com. Again, make sure you subscribe to the podcast, Stitcher and Spotify. Click follow on Apple Podcasts. Hit the plus sign. Send us a voice memo or email us your hot takes, operaboxscore at gmail.com. You'll get that OBS beer coaster and the OBS lapel pen. Our creative consultant is Oliver Camacho. Our audio editor is Weston Williams. For our guests, Arya Nussbaum Cohen and Michael Skarkey, I'm George Cedarquist, asking you to continue the conversation about operas. You deliver a robust vocal display accompanied by traditional physical gestures such as <laughs> fluttering hands and a protruding tongue. <laughs> We're back with an all-new show next week. As Season 8 continues, we preview the O Festival 22. Plus, you get more opera headlines, more hot takes, and more orchestras refusing to stand. Join us 